This is the EWN Podcast Network. Good morning and welcome to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Robin Matre. Robin, thank you so much for joining me this morning. My super duper pleasure. I remember when uh, I met you last October at a, at a Women Talk convention, we shared a table and you had a beautiful display. Remember, we shared that table and uh, I remember looking at the display going, wow, this woman is an artist. Little did I know the story behind that. So we're just going to jump right in, if that's okay with you. Um, where do you want to start? Because it's a story to tell, isn't it? It is one heck of a story. Um, I don't know. Let's start right in the middle. <laughs> I've never been conventional. My life is not conventional. So let's start uh, perhaps in the middle of, um, or the beginning of my adulthood. Does that sound okay? <laughs> yeah, just start wherever you want. Okay. Well, um, when I was in and around 18 years old, I was in my third year of um, post-secondary education in Calgary, and I was studying social work, and I was having uh, some issues with sleeping, night sweats, ulcers on my fingers, and uh, as every 18-year-old young woman might feel a little bit of embarrassment around this awful rash I had on my face. And when I say awful rash, it was a raised, lumpy, bumpy um, rash that went across the bridge of my nose and across my cheeks. And I was managing that right through to my fourth uh, year. And I didn't know what was going on. And I went to see a walk-in clinic doctor. Uh, I didn't have a family doctor in Calgary. I was a student and I was 18. Who needs a family doctor at 18? So I went in and uh, the doctor there said, oh, it seems to me that you may have something called systemic lupus erythematis, which sounded like blah, 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 blah. What I really cared about was getting this thing (laughs) off my face because it was cramping my style in a big way. So he referred me to a rheumatologist. And he said to me, you know, you'll probably have 10 really good years. And then my jaw dropped. I walked back to my apartment in complete despair. Uh, Robin, 10 years of life? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. uh, Bedside manner missing? Or I'm sure it wasn't that harsh. It probably felt that harsh. Oh, it felt like uh, um, everything, every hope, every dream, every movement forward that an 18-year-old has. Uh, And at 18, you're immortal, fully immortal. You've got life. You're away from your parents. You are living big for 18. And uh, and I was, uh, you know, completely floored. And so I went back to my apartment. I waited for a call and I was connected with a rheumatologist. Through a course of of, um, working through that, um, 
we were able to get my lupus under control, get the rash under control. But that 10-year statement lingered in my head. My rheumatologist was fantastic. He reassured me. He said, you know, you're lucky to be diagnosed so quickly. Um, you have classic symptoms. A lot of people don't. And, and I felt lucky in that way. I felt fortunate. But that 10-year stamp really lingered. As life goes on, uh, I got married, and I knew that having children would be, uh, a, uh, would be something that we took a lot of care with and that we would really make a conscious choice of when we decided to have our family. Uh, we couldn't uh, do it during a time when my lupus was in a flare because my risk level would go up for having a significant complication. So when you have a baby uh, with lupus, one of three things can happen. Your lupus kind of remains status quo. Uh, you could, your second piece could be that you feel the best you've ever felt because being pregnant means you're immunosuppressed. Or uh, the third way is that you could have a significant flare meaning that um, your lupus could come and kind of attack your body. So for those who don't know what lupus is, it's an autoimmune disorder where it's been called the disease of a thousand faces and or maybe 10,000 faces. I don't know. Many faces. <laughs> I don't oh, count I the faces anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A few faces. <laughs> and so uh, it, um, what it does is your immune system thinks that your organs are intruders. So um, it can attack your skin, which is the most kind of common one. Um, you'll see a lot of skin disorders and it can attack an organ. It can attack your blood system. So um, your, your system just kind of goes into this hyperdrive and is trying to get rid of the foreign body as it sees it. So the, the information is a little bit misconstrued. So with our first uh, baby, it was perfect. I carried her to term almost to the day. Uh, I felt great. I worked um, a very intense uh, work situation, uh, working with a vulnerable population and um, and very uh, stressful, very stressful situation. I was a social worker. So there was a lot of um, um, high levels of stress. However, no issues, had a healthy, beautiful, picture-perfect baby, which then just increased um, our confidence to have a second baby. So uh, within kind of uh, that year and a bit frame, um, I was still stable and my lupus was what they call quiescent. And we had our second um, attempt and we did lots of practicing and uh, and we had our um, second pregnancy. During that pregnancy, I was, had a lot more on my plate. I was still working full time. I had a toddler and I was pregnant and it was one of the hottest summers on record uh, that year. And um, my blood pressure started to go up and um, our baby stopped thriving in the womb. So they put me on bed rest and hoping that that would alleviate my blood pressure. Um, I stopped working to alleviate the stressors, um, but it didn't come down. And so 
they decided uh, to, um, hmm, what's the word now? <laughs> uh, they decided to bring the baby sooner. There's a better word than that. That's uh, okay. We know what you mean. Yes. Uh, induce. Thank you. Induce. There's a That's reason why I can't girl. recall. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> we'll get I'm to that part. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> oh, uh, I was induced. And at uh, 34 weeks, and uh, our little baby came out so tiny and so skinny, but she, she uh, was born. And, and that was the hope that once I gave birth, that my systems would come back online and normalize. What happened after that was I had a massive lupus flare, but I did not realize it was happening because my context was always being an adult living with lupus, always being a mom to little ones with lupus. Uh, so I didn't know what tired normal looked like. I was exhausted. So within that first couple of weeks of being home with my, my newborn and my toddler, I was having a difficult time breathing and I thought I had a cold, but my breathing was so labored. I couldn't walk up the stairs. I couldn't carry um, the car seat. Uh, then I would lie down and I couldn't catch my breath. So I thought, oh, something's going on. So I was back and forth to my doctor, back and forth to the hospital because I was having a hard time with lots of things. And I knew it was probably lupus related, but I really did not have a sense of how intense uh, my journey was going to be. We then, um, I noticed one afternoon, my right leg was really swollen and notably swollen, almost twice the size of my left leg. And I thought that is extremely strange. And I still wasn't feeling well. I went to lay down and I heard Rice Krispies, a pop, pop, pop sound in my lungs. And um, from my training, I did some wilderness first aid training um, with the work that I did. I knew that meant that there was fluid buildup happening around my lungs and my lungs were unable to inflate properly. And I knew that from that training that that's a very serious situation. So um, I went immediately to my doctor who then, uh, he sent me to urgent assessment. Uh, and I did this all with a toddler and an infant in hand. And we were four weeks postpartum. Went to the urgent assessment and he made me stay there, the doctor there, while they ran blood panels. And he gave me a piece of paper and he said, oh, is there someone at home that can watch the children? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. I'll call my husband. I was very, I was so tired. I just, okay, yeah, whatever you say. Yeah, I'll do that. And he said, okay, here's uh, this piece of paper. I want you to pack a bag and return to the hospital through emergency and give them this piece of paper. And I'm like, okay, I look at it. And I said, why am I coming back? Well, you're coming back because you have renal failure. So I was having kidney shutdown, kidney failure. And still, it didn't occur to me that that was a very serious situation. I said, okay. <laughs> so I called uh, my husband and said, hey, maybe you should come home from work. 
watch the kids. I have to go back to the hospital. I'm having renal failure. <laughs> Drop the kids. Were, how old were you at this point, Robin? I was uh, 28. So a young woman to be dealing yeah. with. Sorry to interrupt you, but I'm just, um, I'm astounded at, um, at the strength in which you tell this story. I, and I realize you're not 28 now, but you know, mm-hmm. carry on. Sorry. I just, oh, that's okay. So interesting. Yeah. So uh, I get uh, my bags and all I can think of is thank God I'm going to be able to sleep. Thank God someone's going to take care of the kids because we were doing this without family in town and around us. And, uh, and it was just me primarily taking care of the children and my husband was working and I was exhausted. And all I could think was, oh, I get to sleep. I'm going to the hospital. It was Shangri-La. It was my steak hay. It was <laughs> someone's going to cook for me and I'm going to watch TV. And this is well before Netflix. So <laughs> I was just like, I don't care. I just, I, I was just happy that I was going to get some rest. And I really didn't really lock into what was going on. And this is really before internet and Googling and those type of things were um, really available to anyone. So I was just in a place of naivete. Yeah, and I think that's important to note here is that um, when you're listening to this story in 2020, it is entirely different and you're absolutely right. And I don't know if I think it's a blessing or a curse because you know the first thing you should not do when you get some kind of news that you're not sure is to Google it because you're gonna see the very worst of the worst. But is it worse not knowing Um, I mean, I suppose you could have gone to the library and researched it, but is it worse knowing everything that's the worst, the worst, or is it better to not know? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's, I've seen both sides of it, live both sides of it as my story unfolds, right? It doesn't, no. So I, you know, I made my way back to the hospital, was admitted, and I thought maybe I should call my mom and dad and let them know what's going on. And, uh, and I was having increasing difficulty speaking, standing up. I, I felt it when I was um, exerting myself and I felt it when I laid down, but I didn't have it just from sitting and speaking on the phone. And uh, so I was speaking to my parents and I was having a hard time even getting three or four words out. And I said, this is just the strangest thing, you know? And I said, okay, well, I think I'll be okay, <laughs> you know? Um, by the next day, I looked like SpongeBob SquarePants. My kidneys had gone into complete failure. And when your kidneys cannot um, excrete, um, it goes into your body and into every possible pocket, the fluid goes. It goes into your toes, it goes into your abdomen, it goes into your bottom, everywhere. And from lying down to standing up, you couldn't tell the difference between my backside and my back and the back of my legs. I looked like a big square. My toes were like, like uh, oompa loompas and, um, and tiny little nubbins for toenails and just from all the fluid that was collecting in my body. And um, so thankfully, uh, through a number of medical miracles, they were... Um, well, I guess I'm kind of jumping forward a bit. Um, they did biopsies on my kidneys 
And uh, that feels like being stapled to a bulletin board. I now know what poster board paper feels like. Um, you lie on your stomach and they drop this needle through a pipe at that time. And it just goes kerchunk into your kidney and you hear it and you can't move and you're awake. <laughs> and to grab a, a piece of tissue, biopsies have gotten a lot more refined <laughs> um, in recent years. But, and um, after those biopsies, um, unfortunately, I had um, a blowout at my biopsy sites and had hemorrhaging. And the reason being was I developed uh, TTP, which is uh, thrombocytic, thro um, thrombocytic propyra, but I can't remember the other T. Basically, what it means is the red blood cells uh, were not maturing. So they're popping out of the bone marrow, not maturing and exploding. So I couldn't carry oxygen in my blood. So it was part of the issue that why I was having difficulty breathing was I didn't have oxygenated blood and uh and I was uh beginning to lose color in my face and my skin and uh so uh after a big stint in I in the ICU and plasma apheresis and dialysis and chemotherapy uh and um blood donation I had 21 apheresis treatments daily dialysis for six weeks and, um, and then chemotherapy every month um, if they finally got it under control. And then in, so I was admitted in September, 2003, which was almost to the date, 10 years from the time that the doctor said to me that I would have about 10 years. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm going to interrupt your story here. Mm -hmm. What the heck was going through your mind? I, I, when I was in ICU, it was like a, a battle zone. All like I was conscious and I almost wished I was unconscious because all I could hear was the beeps of the machines, the back beating. So when people are unconscious or in coma states, um, they would, beat their backs to keep their lungs loose while on machines. And it's a terrible sound. Oh, it's a terrible sound. And um, I thought, oh, I'm going out like this. I do not want to go out like this. And just feeling I couldn't move. I lost all my uh, gross motor or my gross uh, motor muscles. Um, they just deteriorated from, from being unable to move for such a long period of time. Um, and I had to depend on everybody for everything. And I had this feeling of empathy for um, thinking about elderly people. It really struck me when I would be just looking and staring at a spot and time would pass me by. And hours and hours would go by that way in this place of complete stillness because you can't do anything and you are conscious, but you don't have the ability to concentrate on reading anything or watching anything or you just sit and stare. And I had such empathy for people that I have seen in that state. And, you know, what do you do? What do you do to support people? That's where my mind went was, how do I support someone doing that? How do I support myself doing that? I didn't have the energy to have long conversations with people. I, 
the ability to engage was limited. You know, you just mucked through it is really yeah. the only way. And so when you are in that state, what do you think about? Like, are you even able to be, you know how when you're, you have your moments where you're trying to make sense of what's going on and you've kind of got that, you know, bad, good, evil, you know, black, white, all this, all those little balancing acts that you're trying to make sense of all of this stuff that you have zero control over. Mm-hmm. Where did you go? Because you had two young children. You had... Oh, I miss my baby. I miss my, my little girl. Like, you know, it like I was in postpartum still and I was missing my baby so much. I, I just, all I could think about was, you know, that nurturing piece. Are they getting what they need? Are they getting that cuddle? It's bath time. It's this time, you know, um, I just, I wanted to just sniff my baby. Like I just needed my baby fix, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and up until, uh, my chemo started, I just, you know, I wanted to nurse her because she was, you know, so fragile to me, Mm -hmm. you know, here I am in this place of fragility, but still my, my infant was fragile and, um, you know, it was just, uh, hard to, all my mom senses were firing and I could not utilize or, or put it to use or execute or have that function. So when, um, when they would come to visit, uh, you know, I just would do things with them. Like I would, if I were home, right. Just holding them, doing little artsy stuff with my, my older daughter. Um, anyway, we just tried to do that. And one of the interesting pieces around that was eventually like around the end of October, I got to go home on a day pass. And uh, as I walked up to the, to the back door of the house, uh, my oldest daughter saw me through the window and she was jumping up and down and I just started crying. And as I came in, uh, you know, I wheelchaired in. She said to me, Oh, you've come to visit me at my house, mommy. Oh my gosh. And, and my heart was just sinking. And she said, look, look, I built your house, mommy. And she had built out of blocks, um, a whole city of Calgary. And my house was the foothills hospital. And it was taller than all of the other buildings. And she goes, and you live there. And this is my house. What do you think of my house, mommy? And I was just like, oh. <laughs> oh gosh, Robin. Yeah, it just, it broke my heart. And then when I had to leave, she's like, okay, you're going back to your house. I love you. <laughs> oh my god. They're so resilient without in their innocence, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. That so was- you went through that. Now, that's only, that's only, uh, and I'm not diminishing it at all. No one part of your journey isn't it that's true that's true so you how many months or weeks were you in that in in the foothills uh fighting really fighting for your life so I went in on September 21st and I was released on November I have to think about this I think November 19th and so when you went back to your daughter's home, 
<laughs> yes. adorable that she would think that way. And, uh, you know, you wonder how that's affected her for her life too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How much of an adjustment was it to get back to quote unquote normal life? Because now uh, I imagine that uh, with your husband and your daughters, there was a, a, a balance that had been set, uh, a routine that had been set. And in many ways you were walking into that, weren't you? Oh, for sure. And then, and as any new parent knows, those first uh, few weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks of, of setting a routine for an infant um, are really difficult. And once you have something going, nobody really wants that interrupted, right? right. And I was coming in as mom, <laughs> but my energy levels, like I was discharged from hospital, not because I was strong and healthy, but because um, I was stable. And I was still undergoing immunosuppression. I was still doing chemotherapy every three weeks. Um, You know, I was still uh, weak and uh, fatigued and using a walker because I couldn't um, support my own body weight. And, uh, And I was parenting from the couch, you know, and there's only so much time that people can take off from work. And it was... It was a struggle, but we did it, you know. Dora the Explorer, she was my nursemaid. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when, when uh, my youngest was having a, a nap, I would tuck my oldest behind my legs on the couch, and I would say, okay, three Dora shows, <laughs> which were 20 minutes long, and I would take a rest. And, and I would just belted in my oldest daughter with my legs so that if I felt her move, I, I knew where she was and my baby was in a bassinet right at my head on the floor. And, you know, I parented by feel. <laughs> I really. Um, and it's interesting because now there's so much, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's an emphasis, but there is, you know, how much screen time should your children have? Well, when you're in that situation, it's not, it doesn't matter what your children know what you yeah. need to have, isn't it? Exactly. It was trying to find, a compromise that kept them safe, kept me rested, and uh, worked together, really. And by all accounts, made no darn difference in the way she turned out as a young lady. No, I, my kids are fabulous kids. Oh, they're amazing. They are academically strong. They're creative. They're, um, they're thriving, thriving. Well, I, I'm uh, almost guessing that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with Dora. That may that strength may come. Um, <laughs> well, but anyway, we, we we can maybe give Dora a little bit of credit, a bit, but not much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay, so then that went on for for what? Uh, how so much? Um, I was immunosuppressed for the next two years. Oh my gosh! So I did uh, chemotherapy. Uh, for eight months and then they released a new medication on the market for um, those that were um, exhibiting lupus flares significant lupus flares and um, it was the first new medication in 20 years for lupus so I was so fortunate the side effects were um, much more tolerable than the chemotherapy I still would remain immunosuppressed the point of chemo with lupus is immunosuppression just to shut down your immune system. So this, um, this medication, which is given to organ transplant patients, um, they orphaned it to lupus patients as a secondary treatment and uh, released it 
for us. And so then I was on that for the next 18 months and, um, you know, uh, continued to live kind of in this immunosuppressive state. And, uh, and then I was slowly weaned off that. And, you know, um, when I came off of it, my doctor said, you know, you should write a book. You are the poster child for lupus. Look at you go. To look at you, no one would ever know your story. To look at your blood panels, no one would ever know that you went through all of this. Your kidney function, uh, my kidney function is at 98%. Um, I don't need to be dialyzed. I do take hypertensive drugs to uh, maintain an even pressure on my kidneys so that I don't, um, there's scar tissue in them. So on a CT, you'll see scar tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see calcification in my abdomen from the hemorrhaging that happened. But other than that, uh, I was the picture of health. And, uh, and I continued to strive forward and uh, decided to stay home with my children and, and started my own little business, uh, which then transpired into my own company over the years and uh, became self-sufficient in that way. Wow. Um, Ben, you're going along as we do in stories and it's just crazy that, no, who writes this? You can even write this. (laughs) So everything is, yeah, like I'm quite vigilant about my health. Right. From a point of um, the inception into adulthood, I've become very aware of my body. I'm very in tune. I did a bit of research. I wouldn't say that um, I'm this um, person that is fully holistic and really has shifted a whole bunch of different things in life. I've learned to use what works for me. And one of those pieces was diet. I made some shifts in my diet, but I didn't do a major swing one way or the other. I just went, oh, these type of things give me inflammation. And I became very in tune with any changes in my body. I would go, you know, I would have my six-month checkups with my nephrologist. I would have my six-month checkups with my rheumatologist. And then I would do my annuals with my GP. And uh, and every June, I called it my tune-up month, right? Go in for your oil change and tune-up. So I would get my mammogram, my blood panels, um, make sure everything was okie-dokie. So in June 2016, I noticed that I had some thickening of the skin on my breast. And my first instinct was that it was a lupus response, and I was having scleroderma, which is very common in lupus. So I went to my rheumatologist, and he examined it, and he suggested that I go to my GP. He didn't think it was a traditional... um, dermic response and thought that maybe it could be an infection because it was located on the areola near the milk ducts. And I was working out at the time uh, and maybe I had a little infection of some sort because that's how it was presenting. I went to my GP. He ordered me a mammogram and ultrasound. I went for that mammogram and ultrasound and uh, the information came back less than 2% chance of cancer, um, re, uh, revisit in six months. And, and I'm going to stop you here because we have to take a break. No worries. I mean, I want to continue on, but I also uh, would like to just uh, take a break so we can absorb just what's uh, what we've heard so far. 
So we will be right back. You're listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Robin Matre. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Welcome back. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Robin Matre. Uh, incredible story journey with lupus. And uh, I'm just going to let you um, continue on. Sure. So uh, my GP felt a certain intuition. And so this is my GP that I have had since I was 18. He's been a fantastic doctor. And he said, you know, I've seen, I've seen this before. And I've only seen it maybe two times in the entire length of my practice. And uh, at that time, he'd been practicing maybe 30 years. And he said, I just, you don't fit the parameters of what this might be, but I really think you should go to breast health for a further investigation. And so he didn't say cancer. He didn't say any, he just said, I think it needs further investigation. So I said, okay. He goes, I don't think we should wait six months. And I said, okay. So I went to have an appointment and, uh, and they said, let's get you on antibiotics. It looks like you have an infection and uh, we're going to put you on this uh, heavy duty course of antibiotics for two weeks. So we're in the middle of summer. I do these antibiotics. My follow-up appointment um, is not until the end of summer which is very frustrating when you're in the midst of, of uh, assessment. And so I went on a, a a trip and I just, it was in the back of my mind, the back of my mind. What is this? What is this? What's going on? Am I having a lupus flare? Cause that's my first reaction. And so I'm monitoring my blood pressure, monitoring my breathing. I'm monitoring any swelling because my first weak point is now my kidneys. And um, I return home, I call breast health, and I said, you know, I'm feeling really anxious about this. Is there any way I can get in sooner? And the nurse said to me, how anxious are you feeling? And I said, I I can't even concentrate. I feel like this needs to be managed. And she said, okay. Okay. Um, let's see if we can get you in. We want you in for a mammogram and ultrasound first. Uh, and then, and then we'll get you in within a week of that. And I said, okay, which I felt like I needed it yesterday. I was at the bit. I really just wanted it to be addressed. So, uh, went for another ultrasound and mammogram 
in the ultrasound, they saw only inflammation. They saw um, a hot spot and inflammation, and that's it. And the doctor said, yeah, it really just looks like, a, like the radiologist said, it looks like um, looks like an infection still. I said, but I took antibiotics. He said, yeah, you're, you're going to be okay. Which, you know, in hindsight, I, you know, <laughs> maybe he spoke out of turn. I go back to breast health. Um, I'm in the middle of uh, a day working with my teams, getting them ready for the school year, uh, doing some training. I excuse myself to go to my medical appointment, thinking it's just a follow-up appointment, uh, only to hear the surgeon say to me, uh, the breast health surgeon say to me, you know, I'd like you to stay. We'd like to do an excisional biopsy, which is a layer of skin taken from the top of the breast. And I said, oh, okay, sounds good. Um, I didn't want my teams to know what was going on, so I just said I'm unable to make it back. I do this procedure, uh, and at this point, the nerves in my breast were numb, and it was a very, um, very uh, painful process in that they were unable to freeze it appropriately because I couldn't feel the needle. I couldn't feel how far the freezing went, and so it was a very slow process with a scalpel as she kind of cut into my skin. And she said, I will stop when you feel pain. I felt nothing. And then suddenly everything and my toes just curled. So she did the biopsy. This is just before September long weekend. And now we have to wait for pathology. Those are the longest, foggiest days waiting for that pathology to come back. On September 15th, I finally received my pathological pathology report, not pathological, my pathology report. And I was diagnosed with stage 3C inflammatory breast cancer. Gosh, Robin, those words, when you heard those words, tell me what, what happened to you. I was winded. All the air in my body just was pushed out and I could not breathe. She, um, my surgeon was amazing. She sat beside me. She held my hand. She calmed me and she said, okay, do you want to hear this again? I said, okay. So she told me again, and I said, what does that mean? And she said, well, inflammatory breast cancer is the no lump breast cancer. I had no lump. Had I gone with the come back in six months for a follow-up, that would have put me into December, and I would not be here sharing this story. Inflammatory breast cancer is an aggressive, aggressive form of breast cancer. Did you, did you, I, I just have to go to a bit, but did, did your faith come into it, into this at all? Or did you have faith or did you gain, get faith or, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. 
Um, I've always, um, I've always had um, a firm belief in in God, and um, asking for clarity, guidance in everything. Um, through my through my lupus uh, journey, I would often say, whatever needs to happen, please just give me the strength and courage to walk through it mm-hmm. and help me understand what I need to do. Provide me with clarity. Provide me with direction. Provide me with the resources I need to manage this, whatever that looks like. You know, and um, when, when this happened, I was just like, wow, really? <laughs> I was like, wow, I, I have this... I have lupus. I have a significant involvement with it that threatened my life. Now I have stage 3C, which ultimately they said stage 3C slash 4. So because it had moved into the skin and it had involved quite a bit of the skin, that's considered a stage 4 cancer whenever it moves from the original point. And that's where, where what I, I wanted to, why I asked you about the face bit, because my gosh, I mean, to have gone to that, to the things that you've experienced in your short young life, how do you wrap your head around that kind of news? Like, uh, you must have wanted to scream. Well, I just, I was, at first I was, I was like just in shock. I couldn't even feel. Like, I didn't have any feelings. I was numb. Um, I just felt like the world was happening around me, and I was walking in this bubble where one moment the energy around me was one way, and then in the next moment the energy was different. And to anybody else, they would not know the difference. It was palpable for me in such a deep way, and I just thought to myself, thank goodness for lupus. Yeah, I remember when we were doing our initial um, chat about um, doing this podcast, and that just it has struck me since to be grateful for something that is so destructive to your body. Like, uh, that's a it's an amazing thing to say. So let, I want you to talk to more about why you were thankful for your lupus. Lupus uh, provided me with developing skills in being an advocate for myself. No health system is perfect. There is so much information out there of best practices, new practices, Um, different interventions, levels of assessment that no one doctor could ever have all that information at their fingertips, considering patient load and patient care. So I knew that through my journey with lupus, I had learned how to be the hub, the, the center of my care, and that I could easily summarize what needed to be shared at what time with what doctor. When you kind of get into the, the cancer treatment pieces, there are a lot of different people with different jobs and different roles and responsibilities that are intervening 
for your best health. And their intentions are to give you that best health. But they don't have all the information that you have, that you've experienced. And if you're able to succinctly bring that together to share with them versus them having to read through chart notes, it makes your treatment experience a lot more cohesive and smooth and relevant to you. Because again, every person's treatment journey is unique to them. Many people might think that, oh, well, all cancers are treated this way and this is happens. And there's kind of this, um, I think, um, treatment myth around how everybody is treated. I think people make assumptions about what intervention looks like. But it's very unique to each person and each person's needs. And I would say that in having lupus, I learned that I am unique and that I can advocate for myself in a respectful manner, in an educated manner, with, with solid information. And I learned how to, to get that information without being offensive <laughs> to the practitioner that's working with me because we really are a team. And when, when you have underlying complicating factors, it's really important to understand those pieces, to be able to advocate for your best health. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, we, we tend to put, I I can't even imagine what it's like to be uh, in the medical field because we tend to, they must feel an incredible amount of pressure. I mean, they're human beings dealing with other human beings' lives. And uh, I think they sometimes are, are a bit misunderstood. Do you think so? I think so. Absolutely. Like I think about the requirements on every level of what they need to manage in a day, you know, and for them to really be connected with someone who is in such a vulnerable place. You know, a lot of people come in with a, a story of what they feel cancer might look like. Right. So when someone's diagnosed with cancer and if they've had no other medical um, context of experience, um, they can come in with quite a heavy load of stress and emotions and projections onto their doctor. And they're also grieving, which I think they absolutely realize that anticipatory grief can be uh, just as uh, debilitating as as the full-on grief. Yes. Yes. So um, I think my lupus, you know, interesting that you bring that grief piece in because through my lupus experience, I learned that it's uh, grieving, being present in those emotions is very normalizing. And I feel like I can manage my grief more readily than maybe someone that doesn't have as much experience in managing that emotion. Right. And so I'm able to process that. So when I, when I was first diagnosed with cancer, um, I had no feeling because I was in shock because I guess maybe I had built up a little bit of immortality feeling of I've got this lupus under control. I've, I've got it figured out. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then I guess I got a bit big for my britches and <laughs> got pegged down. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I, I think there is a difference being too for your britches <laughs> constantly slammed with yeah. horrible diagnoses that you, you know, clearly, I mean, nobody asks for that for sure. So, well, and then, so then that brings me to that kind of belief system uh, around God. And, you know, I ask myself sometimes, why? why me and why what is the importance of of my story and um robin that's beautiful that you said that you know and that's the whole point of this podcast is telling stories of people who despite some of the most horrific experiences human beings can have and i you know i mean it it says something when you've walked that in through that mud and you come out on the other side and you look at it as a gift that you can share with the world. That's, that's amazing to me that you just said that. Well, I feel, I feel compelled to share my experience. I feel like it's not mine to keep. Wow. You know, I really feel that it's important to uh, women and men to, and children and like just to understand that, you know, chronic disease, because I mean, as it stands now, like I, I still have cancer. Um, it's controlled. Um, but I live with stage four inflammatory breast cancer and, uh, I will live with it for the rest of my life. It's that's the chronicity of it. Mm -hmm. And I can either let that incapacitate me or I can figure out how to live with it in a way that honors my, my body's needs and honors a life well lived. And uh, my hope is that I live for a really long time. I have intentions of being in purple leather pants and uh, 90 years old with silver hair and just rocking it. Like, I have that intention. (laughs) Awesome. Well, and you know, um, one of the things that we have talked about as well is that uh, I remember, you know, meeting you last year at this convention and we were at one point sharing pictures of our children. Uh, And, you know, we're the same, we're the same, Robin. We, We love our children. We want the best for our children. We're proud of our children. Mm hmm really struck me, and I've told you this a couple of times, it really struck me at how incredibly strong you are and have become because of this journey. And I, you know, the the next part of this story is really fascinating to me because it's like, oh my gosh, like, what is it that you can't do? (laughs) (laughs) So tell that part, because that is so cool to me. It really, really is. Well, the first thing I'd like to say is I can't do a cartwheel. So that's kind of on the list of learning how to do. I don't know. (laughs) Cartwheels freak me out. (laughs) I can't do them either, Robin. (laughs) I've never been able to do a cartwheel. So I need to learn how to do a cartwheel. But that aside, I I decided... um, So after my first level of aggressive treatment from 2016 to 2017... I was experiencing a huge physical deficit. Uh, I had been through um, aggressive chemotherapy. I had been through a double mastectomy. I had been through 33 days of radiation. Uh, My body, um, 
was exhausted from medications. I was put on hormone suppression treatment to keep um, the cancer at bay. I was put on a second injection. I was turning into a triangle. I had uh, no chest, a big Buddha belly. Um, I had gained so much weight. Uh, you know, that's another myth. People think that um, when you are diagnosed with cancer, you become this walking skeleton um, through treatment. Um, it really depends on the type of cancer you have. Breast cancer, often women gain weight. And um, I had gained 30 pounds in a short period of time just from uh, medication bloat and steroids and all this stuff in my body. So I really, and you know, I was bald and weird hair coming in and I finally saw what my natural hair color was and was really disappointed because uh, I hadn't seen my natural hair color since I was about 17 or 18. So um, it was a little shocking to see the, the silver tips coming in. I'm going to ask you, you know, I, I wasn't going to do this and I, I have to. So what is your natural hair color? You don't have to. Oh, that's okay. It's like a kind of mousy brown. <laughs> with, yeah. Like when it was first coming in, it was like silvery purple, which was so cool and really curly. And I was like, well, this is kind of funky. But then once my hair follicles had settled in, it was just boring. Sorry for people with brown hair, but <laughs> <laughs> I love rich brown hair and gorgeous brown hair, but my brown hair was just blah. <laughs> wow. it, and, you know, it, I didn't feel like it matched my inner me. So anyway, um, I, you know, in November of 2017, I was feeling really... Um, low in that uh, I openly express that I have vanity, a lot of it. I like to look good. I, I, like, I liked in who I was before all of this happened. I was really coming into my own. I was in my early 40s and just starting to own myself, right? Like just, mm -hmm. bam, here I am, you know? But um, that all got shortened up and and I was like, who is this troll? Like, <laughs> I don't, I, ah. so I decided to hire a personal trainer. And uh, because I had such damage in my chest um, and I had the risk of lymphedema, I really needed somebody that knew how to focus on my muscle development and building up my strength because that was the other piece. I knew that with inflammatory breast cancer, the risk of it coming back uh, was great. And so at that point in 2017, I was at a place of uh, no evidence of disease. So they don't say you're cancer free, they say no evidence of disease. And so I was walking into this place of, okay, great, I need to get my body strong, because there is a great chance of this coming back, um, like an 80% chance that this will return. So I need to be ready and be strong and do what I need to do so that when it comes to that time, I can take it on again. So um, I started off slow, oh, so slow, uh, just doing my own body weight. And for me, I'm very goal-oriented, and I decided to enter into a fitness competition. 
something I had wanted to do uh, since I was 18 or 19 years old. And I wanted to do a real fitness competition, the kind where you, you pump the weights and you come out in a bikini and you strut. And um, I was a little nervous about that because I've never worn a bikini in front of anybody before, really. <laughs> I think on my honeymoon, but other than that, it's always been one piece. I just, I really just wanted to continue walking into my own self, being a woman in her early 40s. Um, and continue on that journey that I was feeling before this all started. And so I started doing that. And I went to a competition called Miss Fit, uh, hosted by one-on-one fitness in Calgary. And double entendre intended. So Miss Fit refers to women of all ages and stages wanting to basically do something better than they did the day before is how I put it. Um, and we were all coming with different stories. My story was about health issues. Another woman's story was about losing her partner. Um, he had died suddenly. Another woman was about coming back from a sports injury. Like everybody's stories were different. One was uh, turning 50 and she wanted to embrace 50 in a different way. Uh, oh, amazing stories all in our own right challenging ourselves and so we worked together we learned the posing the walk and how to showcase our muscles and so I did my first misfit competition in um, June 2018 and I loved it I was hooked addicted even (laughs) and so then I when I was looking at uh, the pictures that you were posting on Facebook, you could tell you were really embracing that. And, and that in itself is inspirational because we all, you know, as we get into our 50s and closer to 60s, yikes, it really does, your body does change. And, yes. And uh, you don't want, we all are still 25 in our minds, right? And then you look in the mirror, there's something posted on Facebook and you're like, oh my gosh. You know? <laughs> you're like, what? <laughs> That's not how I feel. Are you yeah. kidding me? Take that down. <laughs> so, I mean, that's so powerful. I mean, that just, just to do something like that. I would love to do something like that. Right. I well, I got a phone number for you. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to promise anything because, <laughs> you know, we all, and I think you bring up a really good point in your story is we all struggle with body image and when I'm hearing you talking about that you know we have that within ourselves we feel that you know you walk into a room and you feel really vulnerable because you know where all your perceived flaws are but mm-hmm. oh I mean for me you are you are a beautiful woman you're beautiful inside and out I don't even notice that thing about you right because you carry your your life with such grace. I mean, it's beautiful. Oh, well, I, I thank you for that. That's a very lovely thing to say. And and it's true. And then, so you go and do this and then, oh yeah, you just happen to pick up art. Like (laughs) did it strikes me that, did you even know that you were a warrior? You know, I didn't uh, really consider myself a warrior. 
uh, until I did uh, this little photo shoot uh, uh, for the gym that I work out at, where I do my uh, personal training. And, um, and they wanted to do a photo shoot. And it was going to be the first time that I exposed my chest. But I didn't want it to be about my, my scars on my chest. I wanted to, to really exhibit my strength. So I took some time to think about it and uh, uh, happened to have a Conan sword in my house. <laughs> yes, I have a Conan sword in my house. Okay, so I'm sorry, <laughs> but this is going to be the title of this podcast. I happen to have a Conan sword in my Okay, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, that's okay. So I thought maybe I could use this. And I'm like, oh, if I'm going to have a sword, I need to get my hair into a a mohawk, like just like a strong hair mohawk, right? And I thought, but I don't want to look too aggressive. I need to wear pearl earrings. (laughs) I don't know. The things that go through your head. (laughs) So... Um, I go to do this uh, photo shoot, and uh, the ph- photographer uh, was amazing. He was so um, respectful of me um, because I felt really anxious. Like, uh, not many men have seen me without my shirt on, and here's this photographer who I, I know a little bit but not well, and, uh, and I'm stripping down to show my chest and my scars inside and out. Right. And, and he came up with this really great idea because I said, I don't want it to be about my scars. Like I I want that to be part of it, but I don't want it to be the focal point. And I said, I brought the sword. What do you think? And he was like, Oh, I know what we're going to do. And he had me hold the sword in such a way that my forearms casted a shadow onto my scars. And it just showed my strength. It's a beautiful photo. I've seen it. And it, it, it is, uh, I think that's the one that you use. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It is so powerful. It's absolutely in it. And it, it says, you know, I have to tell you, it, it, it's powerful, but it's not even about the loss of your breast. It is no. your strength. And it, it's funny how uh, the world, the universe, God, um, whatever your spiritual piece is, how things are put in your path and scaffolded for a reason. So I did that photo shoot. My, um, the owner of the gym, she had it um, put, uh, blown up and put onto um, a canvas. And she put it up in her gym as a inspiration to other people working out and as it turned out through some connections um, little Kevin Bacon six degrees of separation I was connected to women talk uh, through that photo and here we are today continuing with that scaffolding I just uh, life is a beautiful thing and if you open your eyes and your heart and really create availability within yourself for opportunity it comes to you that's so well said and it's so true and you have to be able to be open to it and trust what's what's down your path and you know 
you had said earlier, you, uh, the doctor had said, you know, you are a poster child for lupus. I uh, would challenge, I would say that uh, you are the poster child for allowing yourself to be vulnerable in telling your story. You are the poster child for your strength and your courage and your resilience and your, Mm. and making making women feel normal to know that, yes, it's okay to be scared and not like what you do, but that's not where it stops. It continues on in, in where you find your strength, really, Robin. And I got through that without crying. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I think we could, um, we could do an entire series on the Robin Matre story. <laughs> do want you to write a book and and not because it's not about the cancer and it's not about is it it's about it's about finding like you said you know be your own hub and don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to go and put yourself out where that moment of complete vulnerability is isn't it oh exactly like um you got to get naked sometimes <laughs> like yeah uh in all in all aspects of that like naked emotionally naked physically naked spiritually like you have to have that stripped down um and just really avail yourself to having some perspective others perspective oh i have a, have a final question for you we're you know we're in the midst of this covid-19 um are you afraid to die, Robin? I'm not going out on a pandemic. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Good girl. I, I'm not afraid to die. Because I know with every, every molecule within my body, I live my day, no matter what that day looks like, to the best of my ability for that moment. If that means I, I'm fatigued and can't get out of bed, and this is what I can do best in that moment, then that's what it is. If it means I'm um, in a fitness competition and that's the best I can do in that moment, then that's what it is. If I haven't done my best for that moment, that's when I feel maybe disappointment, fear, concern. Uh, then I wonder what is blocking me. But I, I really think that, you know, we all need to live with that in mind like we're all mortal we all have expiry dates we don't know when they are i don't have one on me at this point in time um i'm not terminal but i am chronically ill that's okay i can accept that um and i have a lot of hope that um you know my life will go as long as it can go and i do that with with as much vitality as I can and I'll like uh I love I love 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 the story and I don't know where it came from but basically a a man was um terminally ill and he wanted to be at his own wake and he was he was still alive and they had a huge wake and during his wake he peacefully passed away with a smile on his face and so you know, I am going, I'm going to live hard and respectful of my body. Like I'm not, you know, um, getting wild and crazy and taking it to the wall every time. No. But 
Um, I am going to live well and thoroughly and, you know, yes, COVID's happening right now. Um, and it's scary for a lot of people, but, um, it's the fear of, of unknowns. And so control what you can, you can control you, you can control what's happening directly around you at all levels. Um, from outside looking in, people say, oh my goodness, you have stage four cancer. Oh my goodness, you're immunosuppressed. Oh my goodness, your business has completely shut down. I have no income. I have, I have yeah. nothing coming in. And yeah. I have justifiably reasons to be panicked. But it does not serve a purpose for, for a good life for me to be panicked. Yeah, and I think... You know, we, we see these, you know, these things out on Facebook mostly, but it's like, you know, what are, what are you doing with your life? Now it's time to really dive deep in. And mm -hmm. it's very true. But having said that, I, I, we also put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Oh, gosh, yeah. Right? And, and it's like, okay, well, hold on a second here. Let's only control right now today what we can control. And I think we, um, we have forgotten that as a society you know, we are so out of control with trying to be in control. Not even well, exactly. And, and not to shame ourselves. If you decide that binge watching a show on Netflix is what's going to meet your needs today, okay. Go for it. And, and I think we've, we're, such, we're so judgy as human beings. And that's one of the things that, you know, it's like, don't, just don't go there. If you don't know what someone has to say or, you know, everyone has their series, then just shut it down. You don't need to stand up and make a big statement. I mean, I mm -hmm. shut it down, let it go and live yeah. the way you feel that it, it is, is honoring yourself. Well, and when I uh, started in social work a long time ago, one of the um, things that really stuck for me was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. And, and starting with just the basics, just the basics. Are you fed? Are you sleeping? Are you going to the bathroom? Yes, that is a basic need. And that's probably why toilet paper went flying off the shelves because people freaked out about the basic needs. You know, are, yeah. you, are you relatively healthy in your context, right? Then you go up the next level. And that's actually one of my podcasts. It's not on, uh, that, not on that particular, but on, on the motivational mapping. It just goes deeper than just your basic needs. I mean, yes. Things for Pete's sake. Yeah. yeah. And I think that gift that you've given us, Robin, is um, it, it hits all of those points. You know, I could just sit. I feel like I'm just sitting in like we did last week on the phone. <laughs> we were there for like two hours. It was awesome. So uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. I yes. To uh, talk more. But you know what? I, I thank you so much for your your journey with me and it's not over and I can't wait to see what's ahead of you for, for your future. You and me both. And, yeah. uh, I, I appreciate, um, having the opportunity to just, uh, share my experience in hopes that it helps to create, um, an opportunity for someone else to be, uh, secure in their experience. Yeah, and, and to be present with their experiences. Yes. Yeah. We will be talking again, my friend, and um, happy staying safe. And uh, I can't wait to see what's ahead for you. 
Thank you. And uh, stay well and healthy yourself. I will. I definitely will. Uh, Okay. We will. uh, Well, that wraps it up. Thank you so much for listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. And stay tuned for my next podcast. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. To learn more about Helen's journaling retreats, speaking engagements, and life coaching, or to sign up for her newsletter, please visit HelenRose.ca. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.